Welcome to the Federation CJA 360 podcast, the pulse of Montreal's Jewish community. This is a special Yom HaShoah edition of the Federation CJA 360 podcast for April 2023. I'm Glenn J. Nashen. In commemoration of Yom HaShoah, Federation CJA invited a remarkable and outspoken survivor to speak to our staff and to tell her life story of resistance, survival, and hope during and after the Shoah. Here's Yair Slack, Federation CJA President and CEO, to introduce our special guest. Over the past 20-odd years of working in the Montreal Jewish community, I've had the profound opportunity to hear the stories of dozens of Holocaust survivors. Each time I've learned something new, things that I did not understand or thought that I understood about the Shoah and really the tragedy of Jewish life that was lost under the hands of the Nazis. I've also understood that my role, my job, my duty is to bear witness to those who witnessed the world's darkest hours, those who witnessed what anti-Semitism can lead to, those who bore the cost of being Jewish. Rachel Groper, or Rachel, is one of those survivors who I had the profound privilege of listening to. Born in 1941 as a prisoner of war in the coal mines of the USSR after a family fled Warsaw, she told us her harrowing first years of life, traveling thousands of kilometers, I believe over 12,000 kilometers, escaping Poland to New Siberia to Uzbekistan and surviving unimaginable challenges in order to stay alive. Finally, her family managed to get to Austria and live in a DP camp, a displacement persons camp, for three years before settling in Montreal, making the long journey across the ocean to settle in Montreal. It's a profound privilege for me to have heard Rachel's story. She is, she is the beacon of light that educates so many about the true horrors of anti-Semitism. Rachel has led a successful life as a teacher and educator, as a university dean and a vice president of academic affairs, and has volunteered on numerous boards, on numerous boards both in the Jewish community and outside. She currently sits at the board of directors of the Montreal Holocaust Museum, and she is proof that victory can surpass incomprehensible evil. Rachel? Thank you. It took me a very, very long time in my life to publicly talk about our story. All of you know the numbers. All of you are familiar with members of family, extension, friends, in-laws, etc. Um, I was well on into big numbers when my oldest granddaughter was studying Ellie Wiesel in secondary four, right? She called me one night and she said, in very simple directed words, Grandma, come to my classroom. <laughs> and that wasn't an option. And I said, okay, what would you like me to do? I've been in the classroom my whole life. What would you like me to do? French second language. I wouldn't do math. She knows that. 
Uh, she said, no, we've been talking about Ellie Wiesel, and I want you to tell our family's story. So that was the beginning, and I went to West Island College and told the story a few times. I am terribly concerned that history is repeating itself. And if I overlay 1936 map of Europe over what my family experienced, I'm terrified. Things are slightly different. We have different media. We have better awareness of what's going on in the world. But the hatred is horrible. If you've been watching TV, there's an ADL commercial that shows a blue square. Have you seen it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Any of you not? It shows a blue square. The blue square suggests that Jews are 2% of the population. In ADL terms, we're talking about the USA. In Canada, we're just under that. The square is 2% of the entire population. The incidence of anti-Semitism and racism are 55% against Jews. So should I be nervous? Yes. Do I hope we can mitigate it with learning? Yes. What do I tell classes and adult groups that I see? I tell them all the same thing. Everyone's the same. Don't hate. Don't believe. And sometimes that works. I'm hoping it makes an impression. You all have familiar stories. I'm going to tell you one, okay? My family story starts in the city of Warsaw in Poland. My parents lived there all their lives up to the outbreak of the war. Their in individual families were in shtetls just outside of Warsaw. My mother's family was in a town called Demblin, and my father's family was in a town called Pshisacha. Pshisacha, I've since discovered in looking up information, is a town where there was a very famous rabbi. And so my father's family was ultra, ultra orthodox. He became a secular Jew and he moved to Warsaw to go into a small business in making shoes. My father was a fierce soccer fan and he coached soccer. The faded picture is the only one I could find that represented that, that interest. I'm trying to set a tone for you that tells you it was normal living. They tried to figure out where to run and what to do. One of the issues that my mother always told me about, and she's, she's the presence in my life. She was the strong person in our family. And what to do? Do you run east towards the Russian border? Do you run west towards the German border? Where, which way to go? And who in the family can you capture? The two shtetls I mentioned, no one, no one survived. Not one cousin, not one aunt, not one uncle, no one survived the bombing. But in Warsaw, there were two uncles, one grandma, one niece, and my mother. They knew horror because as their section of the city was subject to some bombing. The one employee they had in their boutique, the one employee they had, 
that had been with them all their life walked in with soldiers and said, and my mother never stopped talking about it, ever. She lived to almost 103, and she never stopped talking about it. That employee said, I've been waiting for this for a long time, get out. She could never digest that, she could never overcome it. Because she felt, and all of you know what that means, you think you're relating, you think you're being close, you think you're being intimate. And they chose to run east instead of west. And they ended up 200 kilometers from Warsaw in a city called Bialystok. And from there they headed towards the Russian border. If you're watching the news of what's going on in Ukraine, you are hearing today, you've been there, that the refugees who run to the Russian border are captured and forced into work camps. And that's exactly what happened to us. All of us were captured and we were forced into we, I wasn't a we yet, and we were forced into what is known as the gulag, what is known as the labor camps. The dictator of Russia was a guy named Joseph Stalin, all of you know that name. He had five-year plans and within those five-year plans for the economy of Russia, there were five-year plans in coal mines, there were five-year plans in wheat mills, there were five-year plans to meet the needs of the country. And so these were the accommodations that confronted us. It's called the Novi Sibirsk Hilton, but not quite, as you would guess. Novi Sibirsk means New Siberia. What was new about it was the work camps. What was new about it was the forced labor. And, please keep in mind, no sanitation, no ventilation, no medical care, soldiers guarding you, and work, survive, or not. It, it was a insignificant differential between life and death. In the coal mines of Siberia, my mother discovered that she was pregnant. I spent most of my adolescent life asking her, why? Why on earth would you ever even consider the idea of having a baby? And her answer was always the same, it never changed. Said it was our hope, it was our future. If we didn't survive, neither would the baby. If we did, we had an opportunity to think about a life. And so, on March 3rd, on March 2nd, she went into labor in 1941. That was two years in the Gulag after the bombing of Warsaw. When she went into labor, the soldiers who were guarding the workers refused to allow my father to go with her to what he thought was a clinic but was really a single midwife. There were no hospitals, no medical care, no nutrition support, none of the things that everyone here is comfortable and familiar with. He took the chance by somehow conniving his way onto a sleigh with a horse to get to the midwife 
so that his baby would be born in some sense of proper care. I don't know why, he didn't know why, my mother didn't know why, he wasn't shot. We, it's, it's one of those life issues where you, you're meant to survive. He got to the midwife, my mother delivered a baby weighing somewhere around two pounds, and the midwife said, this baby will not survive, leave it here, I, it will die, I will bury it, go back to work. Here I am. She was the strongest, the most determined person I have ever known. And she would be sitting here in the room and saying, it didn't happen quite that way, I have a different story, <laughs> as you would expect. She took the baby back to the mine. And then there was a question of what to feed the baby how to feed the baby. She herself was terribly malnourished. So what, what are the possibilities? And then I have to tell you the real, the real secret story of my family. When they ran from their home in Poland, they grabbed a container of coins. They had a collection of gold coins. Remember, there were no banks. You couldn't write a check. And unless you carried cash, there was no other way for exchange or trade. My uncle, the furrier, had made a coat for my mother. The coat was uh, a wool outer and fur inner. What she did, because she knew how to sew well, she sewed the coins inside the fur and wore it no matter what. Those coins were trade for milk, for bread, for sugar. And I'm wearing the last two. Okay. My girls, my, my granddaughters and my daughters will have to fight for this one. <laughs> They'll have to rotate it through the family. The thought of giving it to the museum has occurred to me, but I think I'd, I'd be expelled from my family. When they had two coins left at the end of the war, my father took it to a jeweler and he poured it, he had him pour it into a knot. It was very specific. The knot was, I made it, I'm holding on, I'm strong. And my mother wore it into her 90s. She gave it to me on condition. There was a proviso. The condition was that I would never take it off. So I try not to, unless I absolutely have to. I was telling Gila that when I went to work in, in a college where I was one of two Jews, my first meeting with my faculty, I heard somebody whisper in the front row. And I felt sensitive because I didn't want to be there, but I had moved and it was my circumstance. And I heard someone say, dig that bauble, which got my spine straightened immediately. And instead of talking about curriculum and the program I was there to administer, I spoke about the Holocaust and I explained the ring. I think that person had difficulty making eye contact with me, but we did come around to her learning something about it. So, after five years in coal mines in Siberia, 
we were shipped to the next project. And the next project was in Samarkand, in a country called Uzbekistan. So in Uzbekistan, we were slightly better off. My father and my uncles, my mother was spared, my grandmother was spared. My father and my uncles were forced to work in flour mills. And in those flour mills, they were on the production line, and they would steal very regularly. They would steal flour, tie it in their trousers, like a tie cord around the bottom. And I have a childhood memory of them shaking it out into what I remember as being a big pail. And of course, that became food. And because Samarkand was the opposite of Siberia, it was from minus 40 to plus 40, with the joy of malaria, typhoid fever, and, all, and diphtheria rampant. But there were markets. There were markets. And they could get to and trade for carrots and potatoes so that there was a greater opportunity for food. And uh, during the time that we were in Samarkand, near Samarkand, in Uzbekistan, my younger brother was born. And uh, that too, but that was a better circumstance. It was a more, it wasn't a hospital from what was described to me, but it was better than that hut with, with the midwife in it. So when we got into Poland, in Poland, Anti-Semitism in 1946 in the town of Wroclaw was, to say that it was virulent is an understatement. I remember, because by then I was four years old, five, and I remember my father and my uncle standing guard at the door. I can't imagine what they would have done. They had no weapons. I can't imagine what they would have done had the door been broken down by anybody, but I guess they felt they had to do something. And they'd heard that there were DP camps opening up in Austria, and we ended up in a displaced person camp outside of the city of Salzburg. And I wanted to show you not just the grim and the horror, but the opportunity to become normal. I wished my whole adolescence, I wished just to be a regular kid. I just wanted to do what other kids did. But at home, there was always, always, always the background of where we came from and what had happened to us and everyone who was missing. There wasn't a Yom Tov, there wasn't a celebration, that there wasn't a mention of all the glasses that weren't filled and of all the parts of our life that were missing. So this is the fellow that rescued me from immigrant status to regular status. He was born in Canada and, and Canadian, and he'd never heard all these stories, but he certainly absorbed them over a lifetime of 61 years. And that's my hmm. victory over evil. Now, in reality, it probably would have been 10 times that size and more had any of those relatives lived. But we made a life for ourselves. My mother asked where was the biggest Jewish community in Canada when she was 
recruited by a union because of her skill as a designer. She was allowed to bring our family because she could fulfill a contract. My grandmother could not come. She had to stay behind. That was a fun adventure of tears and, and fears and horrors. But we came here. She trotted us off, speaking multiple languages, she trotted us off to the nearest school. We were on Saint-Urbain and Bobine. The nearest school was French-speaking. They were, we were rejected because we were not Catholic and we could not attend. So she took us to the nearest Protestant school. We were neither Protestant or Catholic. We developed a life. We followed the educational route as all immigrants do. There was no, no option on that one in my household and have survived as a family. Many, many fewer and never forgetting who we lost. I've talked to 12-year-olds and I've talked to seniors. I really feel that people don't understand what happened. And they think it, by now, we're so used to drama on TV and in films, it almost becomes unreal. I wake up sometimes and think, okay, it's a good story, but did it really happen? It did, it did. And how do we get that information across? Your mandate is cut out for you. <laughs> it, it's really critically important. If there are to be, it doesn't matter if it's French second language, English, do the French mandatory courses and talk about Holocaust. To me, the most critical, A, is to understand what happened, B, not to harbor hate, and not to spend your whole existence hating. I had the hardest time standing in the city of Berlin, I can't even begin to tell you, but in the end, I found it to be a beautiful city and a very cultured city and a very interesting city. I had to swallow the stuff in the back of my, in the back of my neck to do it. You have to tell people that we're all the same. It doesn't matter. I worked in healthcare education for the last 20 years. I had 80-some clinical sites all over the province of Ontario. I never met a physician ever or a technologist ever who told me that one body is different than another. Some of the parts shift around <laughs> differently. But the ends, everybody's the same and the kids have to learn that. They have to, including our own tribe, including our own tribe. And, and, you know, when I talk to kids who've come back from March of the Living, some of them really get it, and some of them need some help. I read an expression not long ago, it said that the, the times are changing, but human nature doesn't. I'm hoping, I'm hoping to have a, a little, a little influence on, on the human nature part. Thank you for your comment. Thank you, Yair, and thank you to our special guest, Rachel Groper. And thank you for tuning in. We hope you found this special episode interesting. If you did, please leave a comment, rate us, and please share this podcast with friends and family. And be sure to click the subscribe button 
wherever you're listening to this so that you get the next episode directly in your inbox or your podcast queue. Our executive producer is Senior Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications, Nancy Brightman. Our technical producer is Daniel Moskovich. I'm Glenn J. Nashin, the producer of the Federation CJA 360 podcast, the pulse of Montreal's Jewish community. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Federation CJA, the impact we have in the Montreal Jewish community, Israel and around the world, visit us at federationcja.org on Facebook and on Instagram. Until next month, Shalom.